Welcome back to State Local Government. This is Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. Welcome to the final podcast of the semester. This week's topic is bureaucracies in the civil service. Most discussions about bureaucracy and bureaucratic theory start with a guy named Max Weber. Uh, if you've taken a course in sociology, you might have heard of Weber. He's generally credited as one of the fo- fo- one of the founding fathers of the discipline of sociology. Uh, in a book published about a year after his death called Wirtschaft und Gesellschaft, which translates roughly to economy and society, you know, from about, about 1921, um, what Weber was looking at there was mostly this question of how does society organize, how was it organizing itself at the beginning of the 20th century in its own time? Now, he was mostly looking at larger economic and social forces, particularly the Industrial Revolution and how it affected England and Germany. But he did dedicate part of one chapter to this issue, to an issue, how are changes in business and social organizations affecting and influencing change in government agencies and how government agencies organize themselves and conduct their business? Um, I used to have students read this um, and realized after many years of doing so that it was a little dense and folks kind of got lost in some of the jargon. So I'm just going to describe it for you. Weber actually identifies and describes six characteristics of bureaucratic organization. He does spend a lot of time on paperwork. But you can really synthesize his characteristics down into three basic attributes and three basic principles. First, there is a hierarchical structure. Bureaucratic structures are highly organized. There's a clear chain of command. Everybody knows who do I report to, who in turn reports to me. That's the first one. Second one. There's a specialization of function. Everybody in a bureaucratic system has a very specific set of responsibilities. There aren't a lot of jack of all trades in a truly bureaucratic organization. Everybody has one job, maybe two jobs, and that's what they do. And they do that job over and over and over again. The third is this concept um, that we could call professionalism. Um, The idea here is that everybody in the organization is an expert. Or at least they have qualifications. There's some sort of minimum set of qualifications. People are hired on the basis of experience, expertise, training, education, and so on and so on. If you think about any large company you've ever worked for or ever dealt with on the phone, you probably can relate to this. Call your credit card company on the phone, right? Ask them to, treat, ask them to increase your credit line. What do they say? Sorry, ma'am, I have to get my supervisor to approve that. Um, there's a hierarchical and specialized organization there. The phone operator can give you your balance, tell you when your next bill is due, and give you a list of the last three purchases, but that's it. They don't have responsibilities to do other things. They don't have the responsibility or authority to do something else. Uh, if you want some other service from that company, you got to be transferred to somebody else whose job fits that description. Uh, at NDSU's business office, uh, there used to be three different people who handled credit card payments. Only one could deal with Discover, only one could handle MasterCard and Visa, and only one dealt with American Express, because apparently the training for how to handle each of those three was slightly different. So that's a good example, also a specialization. Favor's point is that in modern government bureaucracies, i.e. the people who work for the executive branch, whether that's a state government, a federal government, or a local government, those same organizational principles still apply. 
So if you ever dealt with a governmental agency, say the Department of Motor Vehicles or the Veterans Administration, you sometimes feel like you're being bounced around, right, from one person to another, looking for the right one who can handle your question. And there's also oftentimes this intricate set of rules that have to be followed. Uh, I posted some sample organizational charts in the unit's outside readings. And those are just samples. They're just for your perusal, uh, so sort of examples of this. What you're going to notice, they're all from different states. They're even different types of agencies. But they all have this very hierarchical system of organization. Uh, the agency heads at the top, and then as you move down the page, there are all these various lines of reporting and responsibility. You move through middle management types of roles until you actually get to individual offices and programs. For example, look at the Washington State Department of, uh, Department of Transportation, the DOT in Washington State. Uh, under the Assistant Secretary of Finance and Administration, there's an office that collects tolls from the state highway system. And then on the way other side of the chart, under Assistant Secretary of the State Ferry System, there's an office that coordinates marine operations. Washington has a state-run ferry system, which connects the residential islands in Puget Sound to the cities in the Seattle metro. Both of those offices are part of the state DOT, but they perform very different functions. It's likely that if you called one of them and asked a question about what the other one does, they'd probably say something like, I'm not sure. Let me transfer your call to that other office. Weber's notion of professionalism relates to another aspect of government that was quite controversial in the 19th century. And that's the question of how do you fill government jobs in the first place? Uh, Andrew Jackson, you might remember him, former president, war hero, uh, he was an advocate of what he called the spoils system. There was this old Roman military adage you might have heard, to the victor belong the spoils. What Jackson meant by this phrase is that the political, the political party in power should have, as its disposal, government jobs. They should have government jobs and be able to hand them out to their supporters in return for help in the last election. Now, what Jackson thought was that this system would actually democratize government administration, because now it's possible any citizen can obtain a government job. What he didn't foresee was the corruption that was possible and sometimes likely under this system. Since government officials were only guaranteed their jobs until the next election, again, you know, about four years away or less, they would likely look to outside sources of income, bribes, for example, in order to secure their own financial long-term future. Um, seeing this corruption, a coalition of Democrats and liberal Republicans in the years following the Civil War started to advocate for what they called civil service reform. This would replace the, the spoil system with what they called the merit system. Government employees would be identified, hired, trained, and promoted, not because they were politically loyal to the party in power or to a certain politician in power, but because they actually had an, had an ability to do the job and training for the job. Um, this issue actually split the Republican Party to, by the time you get into the 1870s after the Civil War, um, in several presidential elections, one faction of the party on this issue would get the presidential nomination, whereas the other faction got the vice presidential nomination in order to keep the peace. We have an example in 1880, Ohio Congressman James Garfield, who was supported by the pro-merit, pro-civil service reform faction, he was nominated for president. And Chester Allen Arthur, the former collector of the Port of New York, who, by the way, got fired from that job in 1878 because of corruption. He was actually one of the corrupt spoils politicians. Well, he ends up getting nominated for the office of vice president. Um, when a disappointed and probably mentally disturbed Republican office seeker named Charles Gateau uh, kept applying for a job as, the, as a, for a clerkship at the U.S. Embassy in Paris, and when he kept getting turned down and ignored. He finally said, okay, I'm going to fix this problem. He shoots President Garfield 
and then declares his support for Chester Allen Arthur, saying, "Well, hey, Arthur's a pro spoils guy. He recognizes the value of you know of Republican activists. He'll give me this job." Uh, Garfield managed to live a couple of weeks, um, but he eventually succumbed to blood poisoning. Um, he's probably a great example of why you should have uh, always hire the best physicians when the president's shot. Uh, he was in some respects killed as much by the bullet wound as he was, or as much by uh, incompetent doctoring as he was by the actual bullet wound. So anyway, Arthur becomes president. And many of the, what are we, at that time were called the liberal Republicans, the pro-civil service Republicans, they were ready for, oh gosh, here comes the worst nightmare. A presidential administration with Arthur, you know, Chester Arthur technically the president, but let's be honest, Roscoe Conkling, the New York senator, who was basically Arthur's patron, his old boss, and he was considered probably the most corrupt of all the spoil, the old, those spoil-style politicians, at least at the time. The thinking was, oh crap, Roscoe Conkling is basically running the White House. Instead, Arthur shocks everybody and signed the Pendleton Act, also known as the Civil Service Reform Act, in 1883. And what that basically did is it said, okay, now we're going to switch to a civil service reform system. At the time, it only applied to about 10% of the federal government jobs. Uh, essentially, over the next 100 years, Congress kept adding, okay, the, the jobs in this agency are now under civil service. The jobs under this department are now civil service. And over, the, over time, they expanded it. And today, we're at about 95%. 95% of all federal government jobs are under a merit-based civil service system. Now, at the state level, reform was a little slower to, to catch on. Um, the 1883 Pendleton Act did not require any sort of merit system by the states. That starts to change in 1939. Basically, there was an amendment to the Social Security Act in 1939, which required if a state is delivering functions, which the federal government's paying for, they have to use a state-based merit system to hire the people that manage that. So what that well, the effect of that has been is now almost all state jobs, like federal jobs, are higher under the merit system. A few exceptions, um, when you get to big cities like Chicago or suburban areas like Long Island, New York, where you still have these party machines that still run the local administrations, those still exist, but the number of jobs that those political party machines can control and hand out is, is kind of shrinking. Uh, for example, I, when I was 16 years old, I applied to be a lifeguard uh, at a town-run swimming pool. This is Long Island, New York, um, where I grew up. And the town governments are essentially, as you may have remembered, most of you didn't have to deal with town governments in your local government essays because you didn't have East Coast states. Um, the, the towns are basically townships with power. Basically, the Republican Party ran, pretty much ran the administration in the, the town, the township that I grew up in. So I still had to pass the state health department test. There was a state department health lifeguard test. I had to pass it. But then before the town would hire me, they checked my parents' voter registration. Now, I was too young to vote at 16, right? My dad was a registered Republican. Mom was an independent, which in their minds was, okay, at least she's not a Democrat. So in the eyes of those who were double-checking, they said, okay, the, the kid's parent, kid has a Republican for a parent. He's on the list. You can hire that kid. So they offered me the job. Um, not proud of that. Not advocating that. But that's, that's how machine systems worked. Um, this sort of thing still goes on, but it's only in areas where there's no federal funding. So things like 
Clark's garbage collection. There's not a lot of federal funding for that, right? But there's been a long-term trend and over the last 100 years, and it's certainly accelerating even in my lifetime, to where more and more services are going to be based on the merit system. We give an example that actually many of you in the class can relate to. We have quite a few people in this class who are studying to be law enforcement officers, the criminal justice program. When I was in school, there was no such thing as a criminal justice major. That didn't exist. There were sociology majors, some of whom wanted to become parole officers, so they might take a couple extra classes in criminology. But there was no separate major. If you wanted to be a cop in the 80s, the process was really, really, really easy. You applied to the local police academy, which was run usually by the city police department, uh, the county sheriff's office, or maybe the state police. Now, if your dad or your uncle was already a cop, it probably helped get your name on the applicant list and get your name noticed, right? Now, in 1994, Congress passed a law supported by, and this was a, a major selling point or a major uh, platform plank of President Bill Clinton when he ran for president in 92. This is kind of one of his big priorities. Uh, the COPS Act was passed in 1994. It did many, many things in criminal justice reform, but a big piece of it was it provided federal funding to pay part of the salaries for $100,000 or 100,000 new police officers uh, across the country. So that's actually what led to the growth in college-level criminal justice and police officer programs. Now the federal government was paying, at least in part, for local policing. So those cops had to be hired under a merit system. So no more going to the police academy because your uncle got you an interview. Now, there are some jobs at the state level which don't make sense to take out of the political sphere. Uh, for example, the governor's staff. Uh, the governor should expect that the people who write his speeches, the policy advisors that give him advice on which bills to sign and which bills to ask for from the legislature, it sort of makes sense that those people should probably adhere to the governor's basic belief system and probably be people that he trusts. Um, legislative staff, same logic. Uh, cabinet appointments. Again, the governor, if the governor is going to appoint a tax commissioner or a state highway commissioner, it shouldn't surprise us that those that those cabinet-level appointments tend to go, they're, they're primarily political. They tend to go to supporters, um, major political allies, that sort of thing. Uh, clerks to the justices of the state Supreme Courts, and in some states, the appellate courts, are also tend not, they also tend not to be hired via merit system. Um this is a so I'm not talking about the clerk of court. I'm not talking about the person that when you walk into the clerk into the court's office and say, "Hey, I'd like to file a lawsuit," or "Hey, I'd like to file a land claim," or "Hey, I need to file for a divorce." I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about a clerk is a law student, usually a recently usually a recently graduated law student, so they're an attorney, but they're usually shortly out of law school or just graduated, just passed the bar, and they assist Supreme Court justices and appellate court justices, and at the federal level, district trial judges. And they help them research opinions and sometimes even write opinions, and they do a lot of sort of uh, research and advising work to the judge. That's such a personal relationship. The judges are going to want someone they can feel comfortable working with, right? But those those are short-term jobs. It's very unusual to see someone clerking for more than a couple of, couple of years. Um, you see that that you do see it occasionally in uh, federal appellate courts. I, I know a fellow federal appellate judge whose chief clerk has been she's been with him for fifteen years. That's a little unusual. It's much more usual. They do that job for two or three years, then hey, it's time to go out and you know take that experience and go 
pay, apply it to the real world. You know, apply it and get your own, you know, get your own, get a job with a private firm or maybe another government agency. Now, again, that's a, those are tiny, tiny exceptions. The vast majority of state employees are going to be merit system hires, and they're permanent fixtures. They're permanent fixtures then until they retire. Uh, if you look at those organizational charts that I posted, most of those boxes on those charts. Now, they, they, they represent an entire office or a big group of people. They don't represent every person who works for the agency. That could mean literally hundreds or thousands of people, and you'd never fit that on a page. Um, there, sometimes there's a name there. Uh, some, of these, um, some of these state agencies put the name of a director or a manager on the actual chart in the interest of public accountability, but that doesn't mean that that person does all the work of the office. I'd be shocked if one person is handling all teacher licensing applications in the entire state of Colorado, for example. That'd be almost physically impossible. That name is probably the manager or the director for that office, but then there's several employees under him or her doing the actual day-to-day tasks of the agency. Now, it's possible that that manager or director is a political appointee, either the governor or maybe the agency's commissioner or one of the deputy commissioners, or they might be a permanent civil service hire who's worked his or her way up the ladder. Below that level for the day-to-day stuff, those people would all be permanent employees, and they're hired and fired, hired and retained, and very, very infrequently fired. But it's always based upon skills and experience. Um, think about things like the, a lab tech in the state crime lab, uh, an accountant in the state office management budget, a software programmer in the Department of Transportation. Those of you studying to be police officers, if you apply as a, to be a state trooper, or you apply to be a sheriff's deputy, or you apply to be a enforcement officer for for state game and fish. Those are all merit system hires. These people aren't sitting around the office at election time fretting, oh my gosh, if the other party wins the governor's office, I'm gonna, we're all going to get fired, we're all going to lose our jobs. That's a relic of the 19th and early 20th centuries, for the most part. One final topic to discuss, it's, not, it's hinted at in the book, but not really explained very well, is the role of executive agencies in administering um, rules under state government. Um, The basic difference between a rule and a law is this. A law is written by the legislature and signed by the governor during the statutory process, right? We talked about that way back during the legislative unit. A rule is a guideline written by the executive branch as a guide by how to implement the laws passed by the legislature. Why do we need both? Let me think of an example that I think many of you can relate to. Hunting regulations. Let's use duck hunting regulations. Even if you're not a duck hunter, if you're a deer hunter, the same concept applies, right? The legislature passes a law saying, okay, we're going to have a duck, hunt, a duck hunting season. But do we expect that the legislature to have the expertise or the ability to act quickly enough to lay out specific rules needed for, to implement the annual hunt? What if there's a late thaw or an early one? What if there's a short nesting season up in Canada the year before, so the number of ducks now drops quite lower than it was the year previously? What if certain areas of the state, maybe because of weather, habitat, whatever, have big populations one year or small populations one year compared to other areas? What usually happens is the legislature will give authority to an executive branch agency. In this case, we're talking about the Minnesota DNR or the North Dakota Cayman Fish Department, if we're going to use our two local states. And those agencies, that they are given the authority by the legislature, establish rules to do things like declare the dates of the opening opening closing dates of the season, uh, changes to the bag limits, um, changes to the number of licenses available in certain zones, that sort of thing. Um, 
Now, again, we are going to assume because of the merit system and professional hiring requirements that the DNR or Game and Fish have experts, right? They hire people with bachelor's degrees in wildlife management or microbiology or environmental science or whatever, right? So because if you assume that these people know what they're doing because they have the experts, then those agencies are often given the flexibility to work out the details. As long as the administrative rules fit in the power, fit into that broad, you know, grant of power given by the legislature, those rules are usually considered to be um, uh, legitimate. Now, what happens? What if there's a conflict between you, the citizen, and an executive agency? Let's say, for example, you want to drain water from a field. Now, in some states, you have to get a permit to do that. State Health Department, maybe the State Department of Environmental Quality, or whatever they call that in your state. Um, if the field is near a navigable waterway, you might even need a federal permit because now the Army Corps of Engineers is involved. Let's leave them out of it. Let's just leave the Army Corps of Engineers because the state process is hard enough to understand. Let's say the state agency denies your permit. Do you have any recourse? Do you have anything you can do in response? Well, your first instinct might be sue those SOBs, run to court, try to file a lawsuit. Now, state courts try to avoid getting involved in this sort of thing, at least at the beginning. What most states courts, what most state courts apply is what's called the primary jurisdiction doctrine. What this means is the courts recognize, hey, the expertise on this issue, it lies with the executive agency, not with the courts. It's certain, no, a judge certainly doesn't know very much about environmental quality standards. The agency does. So what they say is, okay, you got to go back to the agency first and appeal their ruling within their process before you run straight to the courts. Now, that's not to say that the agency can just ignore you or put you off or keep kicking the can down the road. They can't just continue to stall. They can, it can feel like stalling, but eventually you might have recourse. What the agency has to do, they have to establish a set of rules that governs the appeals process, and they have to follow it. This is what's called the exhaustion of remedy doctrine. It's related to this. This is a legal theory which says that you as a citizen have to go all through all the levels of agency appeal before filing suit with the courts. But it does require them to tell you what the process is, and it requires them to follow it. Well, let's take an example. Let's say you're not happy with a grade in a class. Now, being unhappy and being treated, being thinking you're treated unfairly are different things. Let's assume you believe that there is actual discrimination involved on the part of the instructor. We actually have a process for this. It's outlined in the student handbook, and it tells you how to go about filing a grade appeal. You go to the instructor first, then the dean, then the vice president of academics, then the college president, then the system chancellor's office. Well, let's say you go through all those levels of appeal and you still believe, hey, I've been discriminated against. You've now exhausted all your remedies with the, with the state agency. In this case, it's Min-State, the state college university system. You've exhausted all your appeals. You've exhausted all your remedies. Now you can go ahead and file a suit in state courts. Now that's not, that's not to say you're gonna win but if you hadn't gone through the process first, the judge would have thrown out your suit immediately. So you have recourse in the regular political system, but administrative rule, administrative law creates this um, extra system and this extra set of rules and processes because the assumption is, hey, the agency knows, you know, they know about water quality, they know about educational standards, they know about um, uh, bag limits on deer, they're the experts, so 
primary jurisdiction. They have the information, but they can't just kick the can down the road forever. They do have to give you a system and a process by which give you a set of remedies which you have to exhaust, and then you can turn to the courts. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is State and Local Politics. Have a great day.